Good evening, everyone. Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host tonight here for the Gist of Freedom show. I'm stationed in Kansas City, Missouri. I am a genealogist and am president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition here in Kansas City. Our guest tonight is Dr. Kate Clifford Larson. She is an author and historian, author of the book The Assassin's Accomplice, Mary Stewart and the Plot to Kill Abraham Lincoln, she comes with us with degrees from Simmons College and Northeastern University, a doctorate in history from the University of New Hampshire. Dr. Larson specializes in 19th and 20th century U.S. women's and African-American history. In addition, Dr. Larson is also a leading Harriet Tubman scholar and the author of Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero. It was one of the first non-juvenile Tubman biographies published in six decades. She has been working as a consultant and interpretive specialist for numerous museum, community, and public history initiatives related to Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad in Maryland and New York. She also serves as a consultant historian for the National Park Services. Harriet Tubman Special Resource Study. That resulted in the introduction of the Harriet Tubman National Historical Park Act, which is now awaiting approval in Congress. She's been a guest lecturer at numerous professional development workshops for teachers. Her latest book is Rosemary, an Interrupted Life, which is a biography of the disabled sister of President Kennedy. Currently teaches at both Simmons College and Wheelock College in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Thanks for joining us today. Um, I guess the state of Delaware, uh, the governor there, has proclaimed that uh, March 10th is going to be Harriet Tubman Day, and if they have 10 days of. Uh, activity schedule there in Delaware, the state of Delaware? That's right, they do. Um, and the state of Maryland has um, lots of festivities going on, particularly the weekend of the um, centennial of Harriet Tubman's death in March, and um, March 8th through the 10th. And then there are activities in um, New York, the state of New York, in Canada. So there are a lot of things going on um, to celebrate Harriet Tubman's legacy. And which of those, of those will you be involved in? 
Um, I'm attending all the events that are going on in Maryland the weekend of the 8th through the 10th of March. Um, but I've been giving lectures um, around starting in Canada in January, and I'll continue through um, June giving lectures um, talking about Harriet Tubman and her history, her story, and the legacy that she's left us with here in in this nation. And she's quoted as saying, if I could have convinced more slaves that they were slaves, I could have freed thousands more. Well, actually... She never said that, and I know oh. that's a popular phrase that people say that she she you know said, but actually she never said that. Well, that that <laughs> that first kind of popped up, I think, in the 1980s, and um, and was attributed to her, but actually she never said that. Okay. Well. And, and, and Harriet actually suffers from a lot of that because she didn't leave a lot of her own writings behind. So some people have filled in the gaps in a way by creating quotes and um, activities that she, you know, may have participated in, but actually they're not they're not real. Okay. Well, why don't you uh, kind of start us out and fill us in on uh, Miss Harriet Tubman? Give us a straight scoop here. <laughs> Well, as we all know, she was a remarkable, remarkable woman. Um, but the, the perhaps the most interesting thing is that she was born, you know, a, a very ordinary person in very extraordinary circumstances, um, in the most abject kind of poverty and subjugation that we can, can hardly imagine today. Um, she was born a slave in Dorchester County, Maryland, around 1822. Um, she was one of nine children of her enslaved parents, Ben Ross and her mother, Ritt. Um, and, you know, she lived in this um, community that um, had uh, the Dorchester County region of Maryland was um, an upper south community and half of the black population was free and half of it was enslaved. So she grew up in this environment of knowing the possibilities of freedom and wanting it and yearning it. And she also grew up in a community that she learned tremendous skills in that, you know, helped her become the you know, one of the greatest underground railroad agents of all time. And um but she had a horrific childhood um, she was hired away from her family by her enslaver, Edward Rodas, many, many times to different other uh, masters, and they were incredibly cruel and brutal to her. Um, and it is a miracle that she actually survived her childhood, considering the abuse that she received at the hands of these masters. Um, but she did emerge with a will of steel and determination to be free, and as we all know, she took that opportunity to take her freedom and then miraculously and perhaps through great faith and courage, she turned around and returned to rescue her family and friends. So and that's the, the story we'll be celebrating this year. Okay, great. Uh, excuse me, What uh, is it true that her husband was free but she wasn't? Yes, that's true. And as I said, you know, half the black population in, in on the eastern shore of Maryland was free. He was a free man. He was born to free parents. So he had free siblings and he had grown up as a, you know, understanding what freedom was, as limited as it was for an African American in a in a slave community. 
and um, and so they Harriet and and John Tubman uh, clearly had fallen in love because John could have decided to marry a free woman. And that way he could have legally been married to that woman, but he, he married Harriet because he loved her. But in doing so, that meant that he gave up all his rights to her as his wife and also any of their children because according to the laws of slavery, all of the oh. children that could have been born to them would have been owned by Edward Brodus. So, how so did I they think it's, it's a love story as well. So how did they hook up? Um, I think they worked side by side. Uh, When she grew up and was a teenager and young adult, she worked with her father um, in the forests and uh, working on a timber gang. And and, um, she was, you know, quite a character. I think she was beautiful. Her mistress called her uh, a beautiful woman. I think she was beautiful and she had an amazing personality. And, And this charming John Tubman, who was free, fell in love with her. And, um... So they lived and worked in the same community, and that's how they met. So why on this celebration day on March the 10th, why that date as opposed to, say, her birthday? Um, well, March 10th is the the uh, day of her death in 1913, so it's 100 years um, on March 10th that um, that she died. She died in March 10th, 1913. Um, we are not exactly sure of the date of her birth, as you know, many slaves were unsure of when they were born. Um, but we do have a record of a payment to a midwife on uh, March 15, 1822, and we believe that it was sometime near that date that Harriet Tubman was born, because we know the birth dates of all of her siblings, and this sort of fits when Tubman would have been born. So we're pretty confident that it would have been um, in March of 1822 that Harriet Tubman would have been born, but we don't know the exact day. I see. Now, the slaver, did he approve of that relationship? Um I have no idea if he approved, but I think, like most Eastern Shore slaveholders, it didn't matter to them um, as long as they had the benefits of the children born of that union. So, um, you know, if Harriet had children, then Edward Brodus would have benefited. She was not forced to marry John Tubman. Certainly he was not forced to marry her because he was free. I think they married because they fell in love. And the nature of of that type of um, uh, relationship was different because it was in the Upper South. In the Deep South, where the great majority of people were enslaved, perhaps uh, slave owners arranged marriages. I'm not really sure about that. But in the Upper South, people freely chose who they, they wanted to marry. I see. How did you get involved in this research, Harriet Tubman research? Um, Way back in the early 90s, I decided to go back to school and get my um, degree in women's history. And um, I was signing up for courses at Simmons College where I decided to start the journey to get my degree. And um, there was a professor there that, that I adored from my long ago undergraduate days, and he was teaching a class in African American history. So I took it, not because I was fascinated with African American history at the time, but I I loved him as a professor, so I wanted to take that course. I took the course, and in two weeks I knew that I wanted to study African American history. I just was, you know, I just thought it was amazing, and I needed to know more, and I was drawn to it. At the very same time, my daughter was seven years old, and she was in second grade and starting to read all those 
children's biographies of great American heroes, and she brought home a biography of Harriet Tubman. And I read it with her, and I thought, wow, this woman is so amazing. So I went to the library to find an adult biography, and I discovered the last adult biography that had been written about Harriet Tubman was in from 1943, uh, Earl Conrad's um, biography of her. So that intrigued me. Why hadn't anybody done a biography of her since then? Because she really is one of the most famous Americans that all of our school children learn about. And um, there was really nothing there. So that started my journey. And as soon as I started researching her life, I got hooked, just like everybody who gets to know Harriet. They're just hooked and can't let her go. So um, I was drawn to her and her story. And the research was incredibly interesting and fascinating. And and so that's what I did. Um, What do you think of the obscurity of her partner, William Steele? Um, I think it's another aspect of the tragedy of, of black history that is only celebrated once, you know, um, one month of the year. It should be all year long. Um, and I think that he has become part of a, a great many black heroes and historical figures that we should all be learning about. Um, he has been getting more attention lately with the documentary that came out recently about William Still and the Underground Railroad and his activities. Um, and I think he will get more of his due as as time goes on. The history of the Underground Railroad, in fact, really didn't get much attention by academia until the past 10 years. So I think it just has a maturity that's going to come with it, and a lot of these black heroes and historical actors will, will finally get their due. And um, can you tell us a little bit more of... Do you believe that... Uh... That racism is a masculinity problem. Um, um, how do you, can you explain that a little bit more? Well, speaking of William Steele, um, you know he doesn't fit the profile of an ignorant runaway slave. No. Maybe that's why he didn't get the attention um, that history owes him. Um, well, Frederick Douglass has gotten a lot of attention, and he doesn't fit that image either. I think part of it is William Still's connection to the Underground Railroad, which was sort of, I think it was mythologized so much that people no longer took it seriously, that it was really the topic for children's books and things like that. So William Still got lumped into that kind of mentality, thinking about the Underground Railroad that's really, you know, it's just not for serious scholarship and for, for serious people to think about. But I think that's changing now. And, I, you know, he did suffer, of course, because of racism in academia and in the public, not being interested in African-American history or believing or understanding that, that, that it wasn't important. But that has changed in the past 40 years, and particularly in the past two decades. It's really tr- changed dramatically. So I hope that our public schools will will rise to the challenge, and instead of just Black History Month, it will be Black History along with it's just American history. We should all be, you know, understanding American history in all its colors and complexities. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, William Still was self-educated. Uh, mm-hmm. He was an author himself. Uh, and uh, some of that bias might be the fact that 
he married a white woman, as did William, or as did uh, Mr. Douglas. Right. Uh, so there might have been some some bias there in terms of his place in history. Um, getting back to this, I'm, I'm amazed that this uh, a free person and a slave person getting married. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of a disease back in the day, whereas uh, slavers thought that free blacks passed on to enslaved blacks, uh, causing them to long and to run away or escape from slavery? I I never heard that. I never, but I, you know, I do know that it, that um, enslavers were deeply concerned about the free black community, uh, free black community uh, in the Upper South because they did believe that they created discontent in some instances among the enslaved population because they, you know, there was the promise and the hope of being free. Um, but I don't know about. I've never heard about you know slave masters proclaiming there was a disease that was passed on and in the upper south it, you know the the manumission or the setting free of enslaved people started way before the american revolution but it really picked up after the american revolution and then religious um fervor early early methodists decided to start uh freeing their slaves and then the quakers of course were an important part of that so there was a substantial community of whites in the Upper South that had manumitted their slaves, and then a lot of these newly freed people created large communities. So um, the, the the marriage of enslaved people and free people was very common, at least in Maryland and Virginia that I know of. It was far more common than people realized. But as I said, for the woman, her children would always be enslaved if she was a slave. So it perpetuated the slave system and it was very difficult on enslaved families that's for sure but most families had both free and enslaved members in the upper south by the 1800s okay i want to make a clarification uh william still married a black woman and douglas married his, a white woman his, yeah yeah his second marriage it, that's right his his first uh, Frederick Douglass and his first wife were both from the eastern shore of Maryland, not too far from where Harriet Tubman was born and raised. Um, so that's another interesting angle that they and William Still's parents had been enslaved within forty miles of where Harriet Tubman was born and raised as well. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to the fear of the slavers uh, and the fear that they had of free blacks, that's what uh, started the American Colonization Society? That's right, right. And Maryland was a big, you know, Maryland slaveholders were a big part of the colonization society and um, and promoting it and pushing it forward. But, of course, a lot of um, African Americans did not want to go back to Africa because their home was here in the United States and their family and their friends, both free and enslaved, were here. And many of them did not want to go back to Africa. It wasn't they didn't know Africa, they only knew here. Um so it was complicated, but the enslavers wanted free people to be removed from um the region. Uh in reference to Garrett Smith, what can you tell us about his relationship with Harriet and William Still? Um Garrett Smith was 
just about the richest man in America uh, in the antebellum period, and he was an ardent abolitionist, a great supporter of people like Frederick Douglass and William Still, and he came to know Harriet Tubman while she was working on the Underground Railroad, and they became very, very good friends. Um, she spent time in their home. Her parents spent time in, in Garrett Smith's home, and he was um, he was quite a, a, an interesting man. He donated thousands of acres of land to um, formerly enslaved people and free people to farm um, in New York, and he was a supporter of John Brown, and as I said, he was a supporter of William Still as well. You know, he used his financial might to help support the abolition movement and to help individual freedom seekers uh, find freedom and uh, self-determination and independence. And he, was he a politician, and was he involved in that? To uh, he to was a he, he, yeah he was a strong abolitionist. I, he did not um, he did not run for political office successfully. Anyway, he was never a politician in that sense of the word, although he was active in politics and that he wanted slavery to end. Okay, and was he? Um, Blacks at that time were required to own at least $250 in property in order to uh, to vote. Right. And Garrett Smith, uh, was he buying their land in order for uh, them to meet that qualification? Right. He gave, I don't remember the exact number of acres that he allotted for everyone to have, um, but it would have helped them all be able to vote. Uh, men, of course, not men. women. Women weren't allowed to vote till 1920. Um, but yes, to allow um, individual men to vote. There were a lot of white men that could not vote either at the time if they didn't own property. If they didn't um, but those, yeah, but those property laws changed throughout that period and and became much more lax. But Garrett Smith was devoted to equality and um, and justice and independence and freedom. Yeah, could you expand just a little bit more on the property laws? Is there anything else to know about that? Well, I know that you know women um, uh, were subjugated in, say, the state of New York, for instance. Um, once a woman got married, she had no rights to her assets. She could no longer own property. She couldn't have a bank account in her own name, those sorts of things. Everything that she owned became the property of her husband. She couldn't sign a contract. Um, it was really quite limiting. Um, so slowly those laws began to change as a result of the agitation of the women's rights movement. Um, Lucretia Maud and Martha Coffin Wright and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony all struggled to help overturn those laws, and they did begin to change over time. And so that's also an interesting aspect of what happened to Harriet. Um, when she uh, went north and was conducting her rescue missions and she had brought her parents north, she needed a place for them to live because it was difficult to take care of them in Canada. And William Henry Seward, who eventually became Lincoln's Secretary of State, um, had property in Auburn and Fleming, New York, and he sold to Harriet Tubman seven acres of land and a house um, that bordered the line between Auburn and Fleming. And at that time, that was really unusual. The laws were just beginning to change in favor of women owning property. 
And you have to remember that Harriet was still a fugitive slave in 1859 when she bought this property. So that put William Henry Seward at risk for being arrested. Um, it put the property at risk because Harriet was a woman and she was a fugitive slave. And it tells us a lot about him but also Harriet because she was determined to own that property herself. They could have put the property in her father's name because he was free. He had been set free many, many years before. But, you know, I can just see Harriet saying, no, this is mine. I'm going to sign for this. I'm going to be responsible for it. And she bought that property. So it's pretty remarkable considering the time period. And when did the laws begin to shift for white male suffrage? Um and as they gain their rights to vote, blacks begin to lose theirs. Um, a lot of that started to change around, you know, 1800, actually. Um, like in New Jersey, I think that um, African-American men could vote up until about 1807, and then the laws began to change against them. Um, and then more property rights or no property rights. Uh, you didn't have to own property for white men um, began to become more popular and more important. Um, after the Civil War, a lot of those land, all those land restriction or property restrictions were gone. And, um, you know, with the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, the 14th Amendment um, giving uh, citizenship to African Americans and the civil rights, and the 15th Amendment gave the vote to black men. Um, those were important um, aspects of changing the nature of the electorate. However, in the South, lots of laws ended up being passed to prevent African Americans from voting. And, of course, as I said before, women, no matter what color they were, could not vote until 1920. Mm. Um, can we talk a little bit about the logistics of how the network... Uh, worked and how her relationship with Steele and uh, Delaware's, I believe it was Thomas Garrett. Right. She traveled. Uh, right. Now we see characters of her in the woods carrying a gun. Uh, right. <laughs> part of that falsehood or... Yeah, well, she carried a pistol. We know that for sure. She did not carry a rifle. And first of all, she was only five feet tall. So if she had a rifle, it would be almost as tall as she was. So that was really impractical to carry. Um, but she did carry a pistol. She said that she carried a pistol. Um, there are a couple of family members that actually own the pistols that she had. So we know that they're real and that they existed. And she said that she had them. Now, a lot of people talk about how she carried it so that she could force slaves to run away if they got scared and wanted to run back. But while that is probably true, the reality is she had those pistols in case slave catchers came and attacked. Um, and some people who fled on the Underground Railroad did have pistols and other weapons, knives and, and other types of things to protect themselves against slave catchers and their dogs. So that was a, you know, the, the, the rifle in those pictures of Tubman, the paintings and things of Tubman on the Underground Railroad are inaccurate, but she did have a pistol. And she would have used it if she had to. I have no doubt about that. Um, but her route out of the eastern shore of Maryland, she had interviews with people after the Civil War, and she said that, you know, she went through 
um, Caroline County. She she lived and was raised in Dorchester County, but she moved through Caroline County and into Delaware through Sandtown and Willow Grove and on to Camden and Dover, um, Newcastle, and Wilmington, where she would run into uh, Thomas Garrett. And along the way between Maryland and Delaware, there were many black Underground Railroad operators that helped her. Some were free, some were enslaved. And this is something that a lot of people don't understand, that there were Underground Railroad agents who were also slaves, but they chose not to flee because probably because of family. You know, it's hard to leave your family behind and run away. So there were people who risked their lives every day, particularly African Americans, because if you were black and you were caught, you risked being killed or sold to the Deep South, whether you were free or not. Um, the, the repercussions were grave. And um, so she had a, a network of black and white operatives that helped her all along the way. And it was a pretty effective uh, Underground Railroad network. And though she never lost a passenger, there were plenty of people who did um, not make it. They were caught um, or were discouraged and had to go back. So it was not easy. It was very, very difficult. I see. Uh, You mentioned that she was interviewed. Uh, Who were the people that interviewed her? Uh, We Um, might search and learn more about that. There's... um, Of course, Sarah Bradford was her early biographer. There were other abolitionists that interviewed her, and we have found their interviews and archives in New York and in Boston and New England. Um, So there were abolitionists, some of their children that knew Tubman when she was active on the Underground Railroad, but they were little children. When they became adults, they would come back and and meet with her and interview her. So um, some of them wrote uh, newspaper articles that were published, um, Garrett Smith's, a couple of Garrett Smith's descendants uh, interviewed Tubman and published their interviews with her. Um, there are interviews in museums in Auburn, New York. Um, there's a, an Emma Telford who interviewed Harriet Tubman. Wilbur Siebert was a professor at um, Ohio State University and also uh, at Harvard University, and he interviewed Harriet Tubman. And actually she revealed a significant amount to him, and this was in the 1890s, and she described what her route was like coming out of um, Caroline County and Dorchester County into Delaware, all the way through New York and into Canada. She identified people that helped her. Um, We have also found um, the journals of Underground Railroad agents um, not only William Stills, of course, he recorded her coming through his office uh, several times. And then there's uh, Sidney Howard Gay. He was another Underground Railroad agent um, in New York City. And um, he kept a journal, and we have discovered some great material in his journal about Harriet Tubman coming through his his um, office. Um, and there are letters and diaries all over the place of abolitionists that that uh, were in contact with her, that helped her, and the stories that she told them. So we've been able to successfully piece together her different rescue missions, the people that she brought away, and how they did it. There are still a couple of mysteries, but mostly we've been able to put together a pretty good um, timeline and identify practically everybody that she helped rescue. Yeah, and you mentioned that William Steele financed a lot of her missions his brother, Dr. James Steele, also tended to the sick and the worn out. Is that true? 
Um, that's what I understand, but they would have been people who are fleeing through New Jersey. And um, I'm not as familiar with his story, but that is true that he did do that. And then through his efforts and then other local um, operatives in his community and beyond, those people who were helped would be sent on to William Still and or they would be sent on to New York City. Um, so there was a great network in, in New Jersey as well. Okay, a couple of questions. Um, how important was money uh, to her missions? And could you then talk to us about these secret codes, uh, these handshakes, and what role the lawn jockeys played on the okay. Underground Railroad? Um, first of all, it was very expensive. Um, for Harriet Tubman, she needed anywhere from like $30 to $100 per rescue mission, and that was a tremendous amount of money to be able to have to raise. She needed money for transportation. As often as she could, she would try to take regular trains. Um, she had to pay the people that helped her. Um, I think of um, uh, William Brinkley, an African-American Underground Railroad agent in Delaware. He had uh, horses and a wagon that was used frequently to help Underground Railroad um, uh, rescue missions, but he needed to be paid. He needed to feed his horses and to take care of things, so he needed to be paid. Harriet Tubman said she needed money all the time to bribe people. Um, she needed to buy food. She needed, you know, things like, you know, Thomas Garrett would help clothe them or provide medical care. This uh, cost, cost money. Um, you know, if they sought shelter, like I know that Harriet Tubman sought shelter with a as yet unidentified African American woman in Newcastle, Delaware, and um, she ha sheltered Tubman and several fugitives for a week. And Tubman needed to pay her, and so she needed money to do that. So it was very expensive to do these rescue missions. As far as codes, I can tell you unequivocally that the lawn jockey was not an Underground Railroad code. The, the statue was not even created until the uh, after the Civil War. Um, the quilt code has been debunked by historians right and left. I, I don't think there's any historian that will, you know, there's no real documentation. It, and none of it works out. And most of the designs on the, the quilt code that's proposed, they weren't even developed until well after the Civil War. Um, and if you spend any time, let's say, on the eastern shore of Maryland, which in many places is exactly the same as it was 150 years ago during the time that Tubman was conducting her missions, at nighttime it is so dark you can't even see your hand in front of you. So to try and read a code on a quilt, it just is impossible. It's too fantastical. Um, I don't know about handshakes. I don't know that sort of thing. I do know what Tubman did. Tubman used the hoot of an owl as a signal. Um, she had two songs that she sang. Um, one was Go Down Moses, and the other one was Bound for the Promised Land. And it wasn't the words that were important. It was the tempo of the song. And when she sang it one way, slow or fast, I don't remember which one it was, it would indicate to those who were hiding that it was safe to come out. But if it wasn't safe, she would change the tempo of the song. So that was uh, how she used the songs. Uh, we know that Follow the Drinking Gourd was not uh, a song that was used on the Underground Railroad because that was first written and performed in 1947 by a white uh, folk group called the Weavers. 
so that could not have happened. Um, and so, oh, and another thing that she did was um, they, they they used real communication like letters. And though Harriet could not read or write, she had a friend write a letter for her um, at one point from Philadelphia to a friend of hers in Dorchester County, a man by the name of Jacob Jackson, who was a free man. He was a, a, a community leader of sorts. He was literate. He was a veterinarian. He was a farmer. He was in the, the community that she grew up in, and she knew him. She sent him a letter in code um, that that told him to tell her brothers that she was ready to come and rescue them at Christmas time, 1854. So they actually used letters as well, but the letters were coded. Um, and so that's kind of a, a personal code that would not have been common on the Underground Railroad, but it was a code that she worked out with Jacob Jackson personally, the two of them, so that when she wrote the letter, he knew what she was talking about. And she referred to the old ship of Zion coming by and tell her brothers to be ready to step aboard when the ship came by. So that's a very specific detail that he would have understood that she was referring to. So a lot of these codes and things like that, they're not real. And the great tragedy that I find is that people concentrate so much on the quill code and these fantastical ways that they imagine the codes worked when they're not really telling any stories about real people who ran away. And we have thousands and thousands of stories of real people escaping on the Underground Railroad. We have the stories of their families who were left behind or their families that tried to join them afterwards. We have these stories. That's what we should be talking about, the real people, real names, real places, real events, rather than talking about you know, some design on a quilt because it doesn't tell us one thing about the real stories of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, there's a lot uh, getting debunked here tonight. We had a previous friend on, Leslie Wells Harper, uh, who debunked uh, Leslie Gist's theory that the ice skates were probably used to help uh, self-emancipate escapees on frozen ice. Um, so we're really glad to have you here tonight because we're getting a lot of um, <laughs> information out here tonight. Was there a bounty on Harriet's head? Um, yes, and that's another myth. There was a $100 reward for her capture. Okay. Uh, we have we have the reward notice. It was posted in the newspaper in on September 17, 1849. Uh, she was known as Minty at the time. So, And we also can document that the $40,000 reward that everyone talks about was actually made up by an abolitionist woman by the name of Sally Hawley in New York, um, and she made that up in 1867. And actually, when she wrote it, she didn't say that there was a reward of $40,000. She said, quote, the Maryland legislature could not raise $40,000 for her capture. So, um, and of course, the Maryland legislature had, did nothing of the sort. You know, they tried to raise money to capture Thomas Garrett, and that is recorded in the legislative records. But there's never any discussion or efforts to raise money to capture Harriet Tubman because nobody knew that that five-foot-tall, um, disabled, little, petite, enslaved woman was actually the person who was fleeing, helping all those slaves flee the eastern shore. 
And Thomas Garrett, uh, he was arrested and tried, was he not? He was, he was, and you know that's that's well documented. And believe me, if um, and so they, Maryland legislature wanted to raise five thousand dollars to capture him and bring him to trial in Maryland, and they were not successful in raising that money. But he, you know, Carrot went on to be tried and convicted anyway. Um, but it, the forty thousand dollars is so ridiculous because the federal government. Um, posted uh, a $25,000 bail to capture John Wilkes Booth after he had assassinated Abraham Lincoln. They raised that to $50,000. This is the man who killed the president. There's no way that people are going to spend $40,000 to capture uh, uh, an Underground Railroad agent that they didn't even know the identity of. In fact, they were suspicious that it was actually on the eastern shore they believed that it was a white man that was trying to lure all the slaves away. And then when they figured that wasn't possible, they thought that it was a white man dressed as a black woman who was trying to tease all the slaves to run away. That's pretty ridiculous when they, you know, all they had to do was think about, well, maybe it really was a woman, but they, they couldn't imagine that really a woman would be helping people run away. Uh, getting back to these uh, codes, uh the Women's International Quilting Club uh, had a lot of events and bazaars. And did that play any role? Do you think uh, the bedding that they distributed? Um, you know, uh, they first of all, they didn't make all that many quilts. I know that that that's been brought up before. Um, some of them are magnificent uh, quilts that they auctioned off at anti-slavery. Um, fairs to raise money for the cause, for the abolition cause. Um, and so those those quilts were not used as underground railroad quilts. They had they were used to raise money for anti slavery causes. But those women, many of them actually were, you know, supportive of the Underground Railroad and some of them did house um fugitive slaves in their homes. Not all of them did. Many of them were afraid because they didn't want to be arrested or, you know, get in trouble, but they were willing to give their money and their efforts to help end slavery. So how did the bedding become so important? Why not shoes? Um, you mean in the fairs? Well, in the in fairs and then assisting uh, slaves in terms of... Oh, you mean how did the how did the myth get started? Yes. Um <laughs> That's a good question. We know that it first really comes out is in 1999 with the book Hidden in Plain View. And it was based on interviews with a woman in the um, Charleston Marketplace in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, an African-American woman who was a quilter. And she started telling these stories to a journalist, um, Jackie Tobin, and um over several years, she convinced Jackie that this code thing was real. But the reality is the, the the story, you know, she told a lot of things that were not real, but Jackie Tobin didn't really check them out. So um, she just took it as the truth, and it, it isn't the truth. And it, it really makes, it's, it's just, it's too, it's too complicated to really be real. Um, there's no way that slaves would have access to that kind of fabric, um, to have the time to be able to create the designs, to have a code that would be commonly known from Florida all the way to Canada, it's just not really possible. So um, it just is a, it's a beautiful idea, 
and um, but it's just not real. The reality is it was people talking to each other, people taking each other forward and passing them along and finding their way along a very difficult landscape. And it took a lot of courage. It was very painful. It was very sad. It was really hard. And that's what we should be talking about, those people and the ways that they managed to, to find freedom. I have. I, I would wonder how many of us today could do what they all did back then. No, I bet not many of us could. No, not very many. Um, but don't you think the work of the Underground Railroad became so fantastic that it created the uh, brought about the creation of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law? Right. Uh, and that's how powerful it was becoming. Right. There are some people, historians, who believe the Underground Railroad really helped trigger the Civil War. And I think they're on to something. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to this bedding, it seems to, to keep popping up here, but uh, the bedding was always being distributed to those who were self-emancipated. Is that... Um, now, uh, do you, I, I, I'm not sure... You mean the, these quilts that were made in the north or part of this Underground Railroad route? Well, well I guess that's what I'm trying to clear up um, in terms of, I guess the quilts were made in the north principally and not being made by those who were enslaved. Okay. Is that true? I mean, is that... Well, I you know, I know that... Um, and let's let's take Auburn, New York, for instance, where Harriet Tubman ended up settling. Um, there were a group of abolitionists there, and they were aware of some fugitives coming through the city, and they were in need of new clothes. They were in need of you know um, swaddling clothes for babies. They were in need of food. They were in need of shoes. So the women and men who were involved in the anti-slavery movement and hiding fugitives would collect these items. Um, but many of them would be sent right on, along to Canada. There were a lot of fugitive aid societies throughout the North and in Canada that would collect clothing, bedding, furniture, um, books, uh, cooking utensils for fugitive slaves so that wherever they settled, they would have things because they often came with no money. So how do you establish yourself how do you protect yourself and they're coming from warmer climates and they don't have the appropriate clothing or or bedding in order to to protect themselves and make themselves comfortable so these fugitive aid societies were very busy trying to collect all the necessities that they would need does that sort of answer your question yes it does um, okay now getting back i was uh, concerned there again about thomas garrett he was put on trial was he convicted he was convicted, and though he was not put in jail, he was fined, I don't know, thousands of dollars um, for his role as an Underground Railroad conductor, and it nearly bankrupted him. Um, but he paid the fine. He was very defiant. Uh, he said, you know, I'm going to do this again. I dare you to catch me. Um, so he continued his work, and he was just a really smart businessman, so it did not ruin him financially. He just started you know, doing his business all over again. He was an iron merchant in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And um, so he just continued his business. It was still successful. 
and um, so he was not ruined by it. But his, you know, he had a uh, a black accomplice who was um, convicted as well, and they were trying to sell him on the auction block. But he was purchased by an abolitionist who set him free, so he fleed to Philadelphia. Um, so it was a, a very risky proposition to be an agent on the, under, on the Underground Railroad, particularly if you were black. But if you were white, too, you could risk losing your property and your wealth very easily. Mm-hmm. Well, there are still some who are contending that the network, uh, the Underground Network, was so um, so good and that, um, and that these codes could not be figured out. And... Um, and that's why the slavers in the South were asking for assistance to recapture their slaves that had made it to the North. Um, right. I think the network was successful, but I think what was more important is this desire for freedom and the knowledge in communities that the Underground Railroad existed um, that was frightening to slaveholders. And what they needed were examples of people who were caught and sent back so that it would frighten the local populations so that they would not try to flee in the first place. I think the codes just kind of misses the mark completely. It was a network of really dedicated people who did keep secrets pretty well. Um, but let's not be uh, have any illusions here. A lot of Underground Railroad agents were caught. I mean, Maryland penitentiary records are filled with names of people who were Underground Railroad agents that were caught and thrown in jail. So they were, they were betrayed. Um, you know, even Tubman relied on people who ended up being, betraying other fugitive slaves for the reward. Um, no one was immune. So it was, I, you know, I'm not looking for codes and quilts or lawn jockeys or any of those things. It was people working together that they thought that they could trust. But it would take just one break in that link of trust that could ruin a network. And it happened. It happened frequently. Um, if it hadn't happened, we would have seen tens of thousands more people run away successfully. But it was very difficult to get away. Very difficult. Yeah, and very expensive, uh, mm. considering what you stated earlier. Yeah. Uh, well, the Fugitive Slave Law really confirms for us how successful the Underground Railroad was. That's right. And it's extremely successful. Right. Um, and that there was something in place that um, the the uh, white slavers in the South could not figure out how the network was uh, working. Uh, they were losing a large sums of money right. uh, in terms of what they valued in the, the slaves. Uh, they were running away, getting away very successfully. Right. Um, um, and I think it's important to point out, too, that um, in in some instances, um, the the mass the slave masters the slaveholders did know about the network but they were powerless to do anything about it and this is a, a quirky thing um, they needed um, uh, search warrants to go into somebody's house if they suspected that person was an agent that was harboring their slaves. Well, they had to depend upon a judge that was willing to write out that search warrant. 
And um, in Delaware, for instance, that wasn't as easily done as one might think because Delaware was a slave state, but not every judge was willing to write out a, a search warrant. So it gave the Underground Railroad agents time to move people quickly so that they wouldn't be caught. But we find in records in Maryland and in Delaware how slave catchers go from town to town, and they're following people. They know how they're going. They know their routes, but they just can't catch them. So um, it, it's pretty interesting that the, the routes were, were commonly known, but you know, just a, a someone staying at a different house could just change everything for a slave catcher trying to follow somebody. Um, and sometimes the slave catchers were very successful, and they did catch those runaways. So um, it, the, the the underground railroad routes had to change periodically in order to protect everyone. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the rescues. Uh, in fact, uh, Thomas Garrett was involved in a rescue. I think one of his uh, family servants had been kidnapped, and he went after her and brought her back um, to freedom. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about Anthony Burns and uh, Christiana, some of um, those rescues? So Anthony Burns was... Um an enslaved man who escaped and, and ended up in Boston, and this was after the Fugitive Slave Act had passed. There was a lot of agitation in the North. A lot of abolitionists were furious that they were now required by law to help in the, in a, assist in the capture of runaway slaves. And, um, and actually, free people were at great risk in the North, too, because all someone had to do was say, you're the slave of so-and-so, and the judge would have to agree and let them go back to the South, even if that person was not who the slave catcher said it was. So it was a very scary period. Well, the abolitionists in Boston... Um, were activated against this law. But Anthony Burns is captured in Boston, and um, he's brought to the federal uh, courthouse to be have a rendition hearing so he can be sent back to the South. And there's this huge riot in Boston, and people are killed and, and beaten, and it's a very scary event. But eventually the federal authorities take over, and they take Anthony, and they return him to the Deep South. Um, money is raised, and he is his his freedom is purchased. But it galvanizes the North tremendously against uh, slavery and the Fugitive Slave Act. And Anthony Burns's story is similar to other events that happened throughout the North, where slave catchers arrive, they capture somebody, there's resistance, but the federal authorities. Um, step in and help capture or retain the slave and return it to the south. So um, there's a lot of animosity that's growing in the north. It was a, a big mistake to pass that law, clearly, because it really activated people against slavery. Um, the Christiana, ri Christiana uh, riot uh, occurred in Pennsylvania in 1851. It was right across the border from Maryland. And it, it, too, involved um, slave catchers who had arrived and were trying to reclaim fugitive slaves that were living there. But the community rose up against these slave catchers and a slave owner and killed some of them. And it was a, a huge event. It was dramatic. It was scary. Um, and then eventually... I believe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong about this, I think that Maryland wanted to try and convict these community members that tried to stop the um, capture of these fugitive slaves and also killed the slave owner. Um, 
but Pennsylvania would not allow them to be sent to Maryland. I could be wrong about that, but I believe that's true. I think you, you're wrong with that. Oh, really? Do you know what happened? Um, no, I'm not. You know, uh, Doctor, we're we're really, really enjoying this conversation. And um, although our producer may disagree on some points here, um, I was wondering if you uh, would give us an additional 15 minutes. Sure. Uh, this evening. Sure. Um, okay, uh, getting back to those logistics uh, that we talked about earlier. Um, was literature used? So, for example, um, uh, Beecher Stowe's book was smuggled into the South, and um, and it was illegal to be in possession of such materials. And that um, would that be further proof that the Underground Railroad was really successful in frustrating the the slave owners, uh, etc. Well, I, Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was not illegal to own in the South uh, by white people, first of all. And the only case where it is known to have been um, illegal to be owned by an African American is in the case of the Reverend Samuel Green, who was an Underground Railroad agent in East Newmarket, Maryland. He aided Harriet Tubman on her Underground Railroad rescue missions as well as other people. And he had a, he was a free man. He had purchased his freedom in the 1830s, and he was a very well-respected man by both uh, the black and white community. He was a um, a preacher in the local black uh, church, and um, but he was an underground railroad agent. He had a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and he was arrested because um, someone had betrayed him as an agent when he helped. Eight fugitives flee Dorchester County. They were known as the Dover Eight in March of 1857. When the sheriff came to his home to arrest him, they searched his home, and they found uh, railroad uh, maps that took him to Canada. There were letters from his son who had escaped slavery and fled to Canada and talking about other friends and family members who had fled to Canada in the years prior. And um, there were other things in his possession that indicated that he was in contact with people who had fled. And he also had this underground, this um, Uncle Tom's cabin. And the Reverend Samuel Green was brought to trial, and it was in front of an all-white jury. Well, the the jury decided um, they acquitted him on the first charges of owning items um, that were connected to the Underground Railroad and that might incite uh, rebellion among the slaves. Uh, because they couldn't prove that the the railroad uh, times tables and the letters from his fugitive son, that those were going to help people run away. So then they brought him up on second charges of owning abolitionist material, which was illegal for an African-American to have, and that was a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. They applied the law to that book for the first time, and I believe it was the only time in the nation that that was used as... Um, uh, and to uh, accuse somebody and put them in prison for owning abolitionist material. But he was tried and he was convicted and he was sent to prison for 10 years for owning a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. 10 years? 10 what about, years. Yeah, what about the boycotts going on back then when blacks and anti-slavery 
people uh, refusing to buy uh, slave-made goods. Um, and I don't know how effective that was, but many Quakers and abolitionists refused to buy cotton clothing or, or um, textiles um, or to buy sugar um, because they were boycotting anything that was manufactured or you know, harvested or grown using slave labor. Um, the Quakers and other abolitionists were very committed to that ideology, but overall I don't know how effective it was. I know it was effective in England back in the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s, but I don't think it was um, widespread enough in the United States to make that much of a difference. Speaking of England, um, have you heard anything about the uh, reparations that were paid to some of the aristocracy there in England at the end of slavery? Slavery was abolished in England. Right. I, You know, I don't know the details on that. Um, uh, I know that there were similar types of reparation laws that were considered um, when they were trying to draft the uh, Constitution here in the United States after the American Revolution when they were contemplating you know, slavery and should it continue and things like that. But it never went anywhere, unfortunately. They just um, would not address the issue of slavery and trying to, to end it. But one of the ideas was, well, we'll just pay the slaveholders for the slaves and set them all free, but that never happened. Did the uh, International Underground Railroad uh, movement affect Harriet Tubman in any way, and if so, how? Um, by international, do you mean to England or to the Caribbean or Mexico? Caribbean, uh, yeah. Um, well, those perhaps, uh, you know, she went to Canada, so certainly that mattered to her on an international kind of perspective. Um, she did get money from... Uh, through Thomas Garrett, from women who were part of the um, the Ladies Anti-Slavery Society in Scotland and Ireland, they sent him money after he wrote to these women and told them stories about Harriet Tubman. And so they would send him money, and he would give Harriet like $25 um, to help her continue her missions. William Still was quite a man. Yeah, he was. He was pretty amazing. Pretty brave. And uh, so William Still is getting money from Scotland and... Well, and uh, Thomas Garrett. Thomas Garrett is getting the money because he had the connections. Maybe William Still did too, um, but, you know, Garrett and Still sort of worked hand-in-hand hand many times. Um, and also Still went to Canada and he was always trying to raise money, always trying to raise money. He needed it because think of all the, you know, the the people that came through his office, and he had to provide them with clothing and lodging and transportation and medical care, um, food. You know, he, you know, he needed a lot of money, so um, he had to constantly campaign and uh, and try to get, you know, do fundraising to raise money. Okay. So it looks like um, so they were getting money from international sources, basically through Mr. Garrett, Thomas Garrett, is that correct? Right. He would send these long letters to um, the women in Scotland and in Ireland. 
and they would send money. But there were other, you know, there were other societies that were raising money as well. And there was the vigilance committee, uh, the vigilance group in Philadelphia, and their responsibility. I mean, uh, William Still was one member of it, but there were other members, and they were responsible for raising money as well. Um, because it was just a constant flow of people that needed to be cared for. Okay. Getting some emails here in reference to these quilts again, in reference to this ability to raise this money uh, from outside the country, um, why wasn't there are there these handshakes and the quilts and things like that uh, used as codes and signs uh, to raise money and to assist the Underground Railroad and to assist these people while they were on their journeys? Um, well, I guess I have, to, I have to answer that by asking people, why are codes so important to everybody when they should be asking questions about people, people themselves? How were people getting away? And we know the stories now. Um, you know, people. I wish people would research these stories in their own communities because fugitives ended up in in the north. They ended up in many communities all over the north, and they fled from communities in the south. And this research is doable. People can do it. We have thousands of slave narratives. There are journals and letters and diaries and newspaper articles and um, and uh, you know runaway notices and and things like that that are available that people can research today. Day, and they can figure out these stories just by doing the research, and then they can get to know the very real people who fled. You know, um, I think of my own work in trying to figure out when did Harriet do her rescue missions, how did she do that, who did she bring away, and it was piecing together um, pieces of documents from Boston to Canada, Central New York, New York City, uh, Philadelphia, William Still's Journal, and and into Delaware and Maryland, and the stories came alive to life. You know, families running away together. What more exciting thing to do than to research these stories and find out about a mother and a father bringing away their children? How did they do that? And it is possible to know that. And so once you find that story and you learn about it, those codes just fall away. You don't need the codes anymore because there weren't any. And not in all the thousands of slave narratives and that we have and, and books written before, during, and after the Civil War, no one ever mentions a quilt code. No one ever mentions a lawn jockey. So I don't know why these persist in people's imaginations. Maybe we're just trained that way to look for those kinds of things but we're missing the real stories and the real people. Just take William Still's journal, for instance, or his book. Pick a name or a story from that and research it, and it is just its a remarkable piece of American history that we should all be learning about, not about a quill code that tells us nothing about one single person or the lawn jockey. It tells us nothing about anybody. Are so, you... Uh are you familiar with the uh, Henry Box Brown story? Yes, that he shipped himself in a box. And Lear Green shipped herself in a box, too. Who was that? Lear Green. She was a, a, a female slave who shipped herself in a box and ended up in, in William Still's office. Man, that was fantastic, was it not? I know. What a brilliant idea. <laughs> Except it was dangerous. Boy, very dangerous. 
I never heard the story on Lear Green. I was familiar with Henry Box Brown. Yeah, and Lear Green's story is in William Still's book. And what's this, the name of William Still's book again? The Underground Railroad. It's called The Underground Railroad. Right. And um, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania has one of his original journals where he kept records of the people coming through his office and also his account book where he spent money on and how did he spend his money helping everybody. And so you can go to their website and you can see digitized images of each page of that journal. And it just jumps out at you. There he is. You know he's sitting with those fugitive slaves. He, the one There's a page where it says, you know, Harriet Tubman arrived with six people and he names all the people and what they did and where they came from and why they left. It's really exciting. I encourage everybody to check it out. Okay, and that's uh, The Underground Railroad by William Steele. Yes, the book. And it's been it's available free online. You can do Google Books. There are also published versions um, that are available. You can check Amazon.com for recently published versions. And... Um, are you aware of this, and I want to ask you about this um, quote that's attributed to Maya Angelou, and that is that whenever an, ex- uh, an enslaved person escaped or was sold off, the family would take a patch of their clothing and use it to make a quilt. I don't know about that. I don't know. That could have happened. I don't know. But I know that you know many families nobody ran away from or just one person ran away from. So I don't know. And if they leave with their clothes, how are they going to have a patch? But it's possible. I, you know, I do know that it was heartbreaking for families when someone ran away. Um, and it was heartbreaking for the person who fled because, you know, it's like a Sophie's choice. How do you decide to leave all that you love? Mm-hmm. But the alternative often was unbearable. And people who went through William Still's office often told him the reason they were leaving is because they heard they were going to be sold or they had just, you know, other family members had been sold and they were distraught and they were bound not to be sold themselves so they would flee or they were badly mistreated. But they all were sorrowful about leaving family and loved ones behind. Okay, or in the case of Frederick Douglass, they might have assaulted the overseer or right. the uh, the owner himself, right. and I understand that some of these quilts these quilts were a memorial to the escaped uh, slave or to the slave who had run away. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know about that so much. Well, is it true that if uh, someone escaped, the slaveholder would sell the family off? Um, that did that did happen, but I don't know how often it happened. And it's you know the reality is slaveholders looked at their property as financial uh, instruments, and if they needed the money, they would sell somebody off. If it, if they didn't, they wouldn't necessarily sell per- someone off. So I think many of those sale decisions were financial decisions. Um, but I do know of at least you know one case in my research where the slaveholder, um, actually Samuel Green, 
um, Reverend Green that I told you about before, he was able to purchase the freedom of his wife, Kitty, but he was not able to purchase the freedom of his two children, Sam Jr. and Sarah. And um, when Sam Jr. fled in 1854, he ran away. Uh, The enslaver was so angry, he sold Sarah to um, a slave trader from Missouri. And we don't know what happened to her. So, and that was documented. That you know, Sam Green testified to that. That that's what happened. Um, obviously, he, the slaveholder, you know, he was just, he, well, he was a bad guy. Oh, that's all I can say. But I don't, I don't find that very often. I see in the slave uh, tax records and stuff of people who um, some of their enslaved people ran away. They didn't sell anybody after afterwards. Can you so, tell us about? insurance that the slavers purchased. I think uh, our artist is probably not aware of that. Right. There are some slaveholders, not all of them, but some slaveholders purchased insurance um, against uh, the death or disappearance of their slaves. It was just like insuring your car or your household items and things like that. That's what slaveholders did. So um, you find that mostly with larger slaveholders, I haven't seen too much for, for like the Eastern Shore of Maryland, most slaveholders had, um, and I think only a third of the population of white people had slaves on the Eastern Shore, and most of them had one to four slaves. But then there was Edward Lloyd who had, you know, hundreds of slaves. He had an insurance policy for his slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people like uh, William Hewlett, he had... Many, many, many slaves. He also had an insurance policy, but not everybody did, because it was expensive. Um, so the richest could afford it, and and did so. So, in that way, uh, the slaveholders would benefit from any revolts or any escapees. Right, and that you know they would, and also from death. So they they ensured that yeah. So they could, you know, Louisiana and the sugar fields, um, the deaths uh, deaths were much more frequent. Right. Those exactly. areas. Exactly. Right. Do we know if if uh, you said that not all slaveholders uh, took out the insurance? Do we know if those in Louisiana might have taken out more? I don't and know the statistics on that. Yeah, I don't know the statistics. They were there were larger plantations certainly in Louisiana than in Maryland, that's for sure. Um yeah. I know that some slaveholders uh like from Maryland and Virginia had opened they they bought land in Mississippi and Texas. There was a big move from the eastern shore of Maryland to Texas. So um these slaveholders would put all of their slaves on ships to take them to Texas to work down there and they would insure all of the slaves on those ships because Ships were lost at sea all the time, so they insured against that mishap. Do we know of uh, any insurance companies, the names of any of those companies that were involved in that business? And if so, are any of them still in existence today? Well, Lloyd's of London is one of them, and um, they they actually insured slave traders, slave ships. Um, and I think the, the modern-day versions of some insurance companies, I think the Aetna might have been one that now and it's it, what it is today, but I don't know what the name of the insurance company was back then. But there are banks and insurance companies today that have different names that do have their roots in the antebellum period where they did insure um, slaves. 
And uh, what was the role of Mexico in the Underground Railroad? Well, certainly people who were fleeing from the Deep South were not going to travel, you know, a 900 miles to get to Canada. They were going to travel just a couple hundred miles to get to Mexico. Um, and that, so that was a much shorter thing. And, and slavery had been outlawed in Mexico, so they could go there and be safe. Um, so that did play a role in the Southern Underground Railroad. And they set up communities there. Are any of those communities, do we know what areas? Um, you know, I don't know about um, I don't know about Mexico. I know, of course, the story of the Black Seminoles in Florida, where the Seminole Indians became their their uh, landscape, their communities became safe havens for fleeing slaves, um, and the, and so they were in different areas in the interior, et cetera, of Florida. But the Caribbean became quite a um, uh, a safe haven for fugitive slaves if they could get there. That was the trouble. Getting on a boat and getting there was was a problem. Um, so there were communities that were there as well. But it was hard. It was really hard to escape. The great majority of successful escapes ended up in Canada. Um, it was just easier to get across that way, I think, than getting out of the deep south in those large plantations to get to Mexico and to the Caribbean. What role did the uh, Fugitive Slave Law and, uh, play in the Civil War and the, uh, particularly the American-Mexican War? Um, well, the Mexican-American War, um, it didn't play a role because that war was over, it was in the mid to late uh, 1840s, so that occurred and was settled before 1850. And Texas actually was considering annexation at the time, so it came in as a slave state um, so or slave territory, and that's why California was admitted as a free state um, and that created an imbalance in Congress so that there were more free states than slaves. So the Southerners became enraged and they wanted something, you know, something else. So that's why they added the Fugitive Slave Act to the Compromise of 1850. Um, so it was as a result of the Mexican-American War, we gained the territory of Texas. That was going to come in as a slave territory, a slave state and that meant also that California, which was now going to be part of the United States, was going to come in as a free state. So it's all tied together. So does Mexico, they still have a fugitive slave law, and uh, it still exists to this day? I don't know. Um, Gee, that's an interesting question. Okay. And that yeah. they won't extradite? Um, gee, I have. I don't know. Maybe one of your listeners might know that. Well, hopefully someone will uh, email me or maybe call in. Again, uh, the number is 347-324-5552. And uh, so when did Mexico abolish slavery? I don't know the exact date, um, but it was much earlier than we did, of course. Um, I don't remember the details. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you right now. Okay, so it was before uh, the United States abolished slavery. Yes, yes. It had to be in the era, probably the early 1860s or late 1860s. Well, uh, yeah, um, 
they it was before the 1840s. I know that. So um, it was sometime much earlier than that. Okay. Well, I understand they uh, Mexico refused to give any runaways back to uh, Sam Houston. Right. Uh, right. Who was uh, a slave owner? Right. Uh, surprisingly, so. Okay. Um, now, you said you're going to be uh, involved in the Maryland uh, activities around uh, the holiday for Harry. Right. And right. Okay. And what are those dates, again, in Maryland? Um, they begin on March 8th uh, through March 10th, so that's a Friday through a Sunday. Um, that Friday night, the 8th, they're having a um, an art exhibition. Mark Priest, who is a professor at the uh, University of Kentucky, um, he's a, a renowned artist, and he has created a series of Harriet Tubman paintings depicting scenes in her life. And those will be on exhibit at um, in Denton, in Greensboro, Caroline County, um, and they are going to. So that'll be that Friday night, and then Saturday morning is the groundbreaking of for the state park, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park and Visitor Center. They're having the groundbreaking um, at the state park site, which is right next to Blackwater Wildlife Refuge in Dorchester County. Um, and there'll be the Massachusetts 54th reenactors are going to be there. There's going to have a choir and uh, speakers, and then they're going to have the groundbreaking. So that will be really exciting. Um, and they're also um, officially opening the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Byway in Maryland. Um, it will be the official launch for the byway and its website, which is now open at HarrietTubmanByway.com. Um, the audio tour that accompanies the byway will be launched at the same time, so it's a really big deal. And then um, there's going to be a banquet on Saturday night. Um, there'll be other things going on during the day, um, Tubman reenactors and sort of Underground Railroad talks during the day. Um, and then on Sunday um, at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Cambridge, Marcus Shelby, who is a renowned jazz um, musician and uh, composer is coming from California to perform with his uh, a portion of his orchestra his Harriet Tubman uh, jazz oratorio um, and that's going to be really exciting so it's a, a, a big weekend and in Auburn, New York they've got events all weekend as well they'll have a wreath laying at Harriet Tubman's grave at Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn and they'll have poetry readings and um, and other activities uh, in on that weekend, and they're having celebrations in St. Catharines in Ontario, Canada, as well at her church. They're having a uh, a special memorial service at the church that Tubman attended when she lived in Canada during the 1850s. And there are other activities all over the country commemorating Tubman's. Um, there being an audio tour in Delaware, Maryland. Um, the, the audio tour will be it will be launched that weekend for Maryland, and Delaware is still in the process of of refining and working on the future, um, you know, audio tour and other things uh, for the byway. So the and the byway the the Delaware byway links up with the Maryland byway at the border near Sandtown, Delaware. Um, and then we're hoping in the future that the byway will continue through Pennsylvania and into New York all the way to Canada. 
tell us how uh, our listeners how an audio tour. How would that work? Does one do um, that while driving? The, is it an iPhone? Right. They'll be yes. First, they're going to um, give out uh, if you just get in touch with the if you go to the Harriet Tubman Byway dot com website. Eventually, the the tour will be available, and you'll be able to download it from the website onto your iPhone or whatever your smartphone is. They will also have CDs that you can get through the mail, and you just pop it into your CD player in your car, and then you follow the byway, which is a hundred and twenty five mile route through the eastern shore of Maryland. And the audio tour is just going to be fantastic. It's really, it's really great. It's a great way to to visit the byway. And one can get there on the Harriet Tubman Byway dot com. Yes. Is that what you? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit about uh, books that you have coming out. Um, oh, by the way, let me uh, spell that out for our listeners. Uh, the Harriet Tubman Byway, H A R R I E T U B M A N B Y W A Y dot com. Right. Uh, to catch up on that audio tour, it's really fantastic. 125 miles, and just plug it in, and right. Uh, you go along the Freedom Trails and that sort of thing. Right, right. The Highway to Freedom. Wow, great. Um, and I mentioned earlier at the top uh, a book that you're, it's not quite out yet, involving uh, the sister of uh, President Kennedy. Right. Um, it's a biography are, of Rosemary Kennedy. What are the things that we need to know about you and contact information and that sort of thing if people want to get in touch with you? Um well, they can contact me through my website, which is HarrietTubmanBiography.com, uh, all one word, HarrietTubmanBiography.com, or through Simmons College um, History Department website. Uh, you can contact me through that. And, um, you know, I've written the book, um, Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero, um, and that's available on Amazon and and that tells in great detail about Tubman's family, her birth, her childhood and adulthood, her rescue missions, and then about her life after, uh, well, during the Civil War, but also after the Civil War, what she did for the last 40 years of her life um, in freedom. Okay. Well, we're wrapping up our program here now. Is there anything else we need to know? We really want to promote the work that you're doing and very impressed with the work that you're doing. Is there anything else we need to know? Um, to I'm just I, I'm just really excited about the byway. We've wor- worked a really long time on getting it and perfecting it and, and making it a great visitor experience, as well as I'm looking forward to the building of the Harriet Tubman uh, Underground Railroad State Park and Visitor Center, which should be built and open by 2015, and that will be in Dorchester County um, at Blackwater Wildlife Refuge. So it's going to be an exciting couple of years, and I hope everybody will visit the Eastern Shore and learn about Tubman's life and also, you know, the rest of the places of her life in Philadelphia, William Still, and and uh, Auburn, New York, and Canada. And just to celebrate her this month and next month to remember what a great American hero and patriot she truly is because of her struggles for freedom and equality for everybody. Okay, I want our audience to know that we've been in 
talking to Kate Clifford Larson, professor, historian, and author. Our subject matter has been Harriet Tubman, particularly what's been going on with her. Uh, Dr. Larson, we really, really want to thank you very, very much. Uh, well, some very good information. Uh, your knowledge is so valuable. Uh, and we want to remind our listeners that the Harriet Tubman Day will be March the 10th. Uh, right. And well, thank every- you for having me. Thank you very well, much for having me. It's been our pleasure. And uh, if everybody can't get there, uh, celebrate in your own hometown. Uh, good night, everyone. Good night, Doctor. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.